My guest today, Bruce Piasecki, is author of many publications highlighting sustainability issues and solutions in our ever-changing world. As a business consultant in his own company, the AHC Group, he works to bring together the top minds of industry in creating an innovative approach to our changing environment in serving humanity in this rapidly moving world we habitate. Bruce, welcome today. Good to be here, and thank you for your fine show, David. Thank you uh, for joining us, Bruce. I think what I'd like to do, uh, given your uh, your uh, position uh, as a author and also your position in the corporate world, is really go back and chart your life uh, from your early days uh, to give our listeners a um, a good visibility of of where you've come from, uh, that road that you have taken. Uh, to find uh, to find yourself uh, in a position now where you really are uh, bringing industry leaders together and uh, supporting the the merits of sustainability, can we therefore start with the early years? I realize, no problem. I, I think it's quite interesting. Well, it's I, not a problem. I realize that you uh, are a Cornell man, uh, but but going back a bit further, can we just spend a brief time talking about your childhood? Sure. Um, you know, in the end, identity is formed by family and initial community so much. So my father died when I was three, and he was a factory worker. And he did a few years of factory work after military service with distinction. My mother is now 85 and, and really a vital and inquisitive and caring person. And she has been a key influence in my life. I, I would say that putting Cornell and the three degrees from there in perspective and putting the seven books in perspective, I think it's my mother um, who built the foundation from which I began the race. And it is my mother who has remained um, a great source of satisfaction and reassurance in the world. Um, when Heidegger you know, talks about being in the world, um, I think we start with thrown in with a set of parents and I've, I've been very fortunate. So I think she uh, reminds me of the Van Morrison song where, you know, he sings, well, my mama told me there'd be days like this. A lot of the days I'm experiencing now are, um, I think, partially, uh, but significantly a byproduct of her influences. Looking back at your father's life, were you close enough to him to be able to chart uh, his environment that he worked in, uh, he, he was clearly in manufacturing. Uh, did, you, did you follow that and, and have sure. any ideas about that that, that, uh, that shaped your early career? I think through uncles and aunts um, and their wonderful Polish immigrant narrative style, I've developed a sense of my father and uh, grandfathers and grandmothers as missing persons that I have known. And um, I have a biological sister, Terry, who lives in Florida, um, and she and I are increasingly close. Um, she's in her 60s as my mother ages. Um, I think getting back to the father figure, uh, perhaps one of my fascinations in leaders is that I didn't have a direct father. I had surrogate fathers, um, like my Uncle Steve, uh, my Uncle Mike, and the people I began working for at the age 10 where I would cut lawns, I viewed them probably with a longing for fatherhood. Um, 
Now, I had foster brothers and sisters as well who came from different parts of the world. My mother, when she lost her husband, um, decided to stay at home with the kids rather than work. And so we lived with some poverty. However, we were paid for the service to these foster kids. And so I had a brother, Edwin Torres, and a sister, Su Ying Cheng, um, and others in the household. But Edwin and, Su- and Sui spent decades with us, and so they were really part of uh, the family that I grew up with. And I guess I would say, since you're asking about the early formation of my books, I don't think I could have written World, Inc. Uh, two years ago were it not for the family experiences I had, because it's from that experience and the longing for the world that you know one develops in college that I chose to write that book about globalization and social needs. So it, it was the influence of those foster siblings that provided you with a greater view of the world outside of your immediate environment back in those days? I think both for the good and the bad. Uh, to be graphic, um, some of the children that came into my mother's household were brought in uh, because of the trauma of their actual biological parents. Uh, they were either heroin addicts or for some reason they were brought into the family home. And I remember as a young man seeing a brother you know, go through the trauma of being detoxed um, you know, after birth with a heroin addict. Um, so I think on the bad side of it, um, one learns to think about um, life in, with some urgency when you've lost um, a father and when you're uh, watching these kids who had a lot harder time than you did before they came into your own household. So I think that was instructive. I, I think it was informative, and I, I think I think it was something that I grew from. Did you find yourself in some ways uh, an insular character then? Uh, did you have a, a lot of thoughts in your mind uh, that uh, you realized was, was maybe uh, putting you beyond that? That's a great that question, thing. but you know, <clears throat> I don't know the full answer, but what I would say is at the age of 10, so much had happened in my life already that I concluded that the world of thought could never keep up with the pace of event. Um, the loss of a father, you know, the infusion of um, different children that, you know, people would look strange at you in the supermarket because why are you with the Chinese sister in an interracial family? Um, so although I probably have become an applied humanist, um, I, I think I've concluded that the world of event is both swifter and more severe um, than the world of thought. Now, later you decided to uh, to go to Cornell. Mm-hmm. Um, what were the reasons behind Cornell? Uh, was it that your thought process was not only involved in the humanities at that stage, but very heavily involved in general economics? Well, that's an interesting, yeah. I, uh, I thought of college um, late in life. I hadn't really had any experience of college um, in my family. Um, so I received, because of basketball, um, several scholarships to universities like Dartmouth, Cornell, and the University of Maryland, where I played two summers at that Big Ten basketball camp getting ready to go there. Um, I found myself 
a stranger in the paradise of Cornell. And so it would be inaccurate to say that I got there in any kind of deliberate form. Um, I got there um, with a, a wonderful appreciation of how many doors it opened for me, um, doors that I hardly even knew to knock on. And, you know, in a way, um, as we have this discussion, I, I think that uh, were it not for books that I found at Cornell, um, which were in many ways windows to my future, and were it not for a set of special mentors at Cornell who adopted me in a sense, just like my mother had adopted those foster kids, I don't think the doors of my life would have really been as open as robustly as I now sense they have been. So Cornell was a place, David, I just kept reinvesting time in. I mean, they kept paying for my undergraduate years, paying for my master's, paying for my graduate degree. I did teach during the Ph.D., uh, but in many ways it's the largesse of Cornell that got me to study Shakespeare in Stratford-upon-Avon in a Lane Cooper scholarship. So I don't think... Uh, I'm not sure, but I don't think uh, children today are as advantaged as I happened to be when, you know, the long arm of Cornell came in and brought me to campus, because I didn't really know what Cornell was uh, when I was growing up. Did you leave Cornell eventually with a sense of feeling good about the academic environment? Um, I, I felt wonderful about the books and about some lifelong friends. Um, I did, David, feel like a stranger in paradise. And what I mean by that is nothing grand and miltonic, even though I did study John Milton when I was uh, an undergraduate. What I mean is that the faculty felt uh, intimidating to me and a little, especially in the undergraduate years, a little remote. Uh, I was blessed by a Spaniard by the name of Siriaco Moron Arroyo, who recognized my interests in, in philosophy and society and knew that I really wasn't properly oriented in a pre-med class. Um, I, I, I guess I came around to the study of economics and sociology and society um, partially due to Siriaco as an advisor. Um, and he was the one who convinced me to stay uh, for grad school. I helped him write his book on Hamlet and philosophy, um, because he was thinking in Spanish and I was beginning to write in English. He, he was a great mentor, um, as was the National uh, Book Award winner Archie Ammons, who was my advisor before M.H. Abrams, um, a man who's written wonderful books. And so uh, I think the most honest thing to say is that it was the books that were the window to the world. It was a special set of faculty, not classroom activity, but a special set of faculty that pointed me to those windows, and uh, that's when things started to take off. I, I would say, I think I heard you ask um, the question, was it a good experience? I, I think it was a formative experience, but, David, it wasn't always fun. I mean, it was uh, pretty intimidating. It was a world so much larger than the small neighborhood that I grew up in, um, but it did it did snap me into an awareness of books. Before we move on, can I just delve deeper into your passion for Shakespeare, uh, your passion for John Milton? I'm terribly interested in that. Obviously, Paradise Lost is the most uh, profound book uh, that was written in, in hugely changing times, 
in the early 1600s, that, that where Milton was really charting uh, that uh, transformation in society from a barter system to a, uh, a system that was governed by money. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you feel that, that your work today, as it was then, is shaped by reading these classics, is shaped by the words that you, that you would uh, get out of authors like Milton and Shakespeare? Absolutely. I think that that's one of the great advantages of the classics is that they remind you um, that, so a book like Paradise Lost, I don't think I've become a corporate apologist because I have a sense of what is lost in the transformations that we experience. And and I view, you know, um, the whole issue of money in my firm and in my consulting as secondary to the meaning of social history which is something, you know, and, and John Milton's whole idea that what you really strive for is a fit audience, however few, is something that fed me through my first five or six books. I, I actually had the advantage of studying Paradise Lost with Scott Elledge, who was a great scholar, and he turned me on to Samson Agonistes, and I think sometimes the fury of that piece and the, and the tragic uh, feeling of that piece um, you know, it stays with you when you have a great teacher. It, regarding Shakespeare, I think at age 55, I'm only now having enough world experience to begin to appreciate the stunning complexity and immediacy of his work, that you can have both complexity and immediacy of application, is amazing. So to, to give you a chart, because I do think in a kind of economic, quantitative way, if you put on the left chart, David, some of the writers that have influenced me, and then on the right chart, say, the sales of my books, I really haven't been that much focused on the sales of the books as much as the wonderful influence of trying to jump close to, even though I might be jumping two feet while Milton is jumping 22 feet, or Orwell is jumping 15 feet and I'm jumping two feet one inch. I am definitely living in a literary tradition as well as a commercial market. And so in that way, the classics from Milton to Shakespeare. Uh, I would love to tell you how, when I get before boards of billion-dollar companies, how often I'm thinking about a tale of Shakespeare because some of the intrigue and some of the complexity is not too unlike King Lear, where you know there's somebody on the board trying to be the honest one, and there's two or three mean sisters that are not quite um, telling the leader the true story. Now, I always come in as an outside advisor to these boards, but um, I've seen the tragedy of King Lear to the CEO before. Uh, Sometimes I'm thinking of the blind ambition of some of the leaders I work for is not that unlike Othello. And and there are a few that I've worked for that are sort of like um, when I worked for Mario Cuomo during the years when he was trying to decide as governor of New York State if he should run um, for president. And there were many people that were beginning to describe him as Hamlet on the Hudson. So the thing that's amazing about Shakespeare is that he had to invent a third of his own words to deal with the globe that he was writing about. Um, I'm so much lower in the game that I'm not really inventing words. I'm trying to reconceptualize and sort of revitalize my sense of society. 
and the social issues of the day relative to the literary tradition. Well, there is certainly something very profound about being well-read uh, uh, in the Shakespeare or the Wordsworth or the Chaucer, and there's no doubt about it that, as you say, the uh, you can cite so many principles or, or story structures that come out of uh, great works like Hamlet and appoint them to situations that you see in everyday life now. Uh, m- moving on, uh, you began to uh, to teach, to lecture. Mm-hmm. And in today's world, uh, where we have so many MBA programs uh, available, uh, do you see those MBA programs of less value now than they were perhaps uh, 20 or 30 years ago? Um, are they uh, citing the correct principles based upon the, the challenges that we have now? You know, I don't want to at any point sound down on study or uh, critical of academic structure. Um, But I have come, I think the larger point I would like your listeners to contemplate is the mystery that even while you're in academia, you do sometimes get a feeling that actors can talk about imaginary things as if they're real, but that academics sometimes can talk about real things as if they're imaginary. And so when I was a professor of business, um, I, I was always stunned by two things. You know, the first, uh, that the MBAs actually felt they could be masters of public administration. And, you know, Bernie Madoff and Citigroup and AIG and all the disasters of late have reminded the world again that it's arrogant to think you're a master of business administration. You're almost like a baseball player hoping you hit 300%. Um, you know, that no one hits 400%. No one hits half the balls. Um, and yet the whole notion of a master's of business administration or a master's of finance strikes me as um, questionable and insufficient. Um, I've worked for several CEOs who had the boldness to say, when I got my MBA, I was well-trained, but I wasn't educated. I think the world of hard knocks, um, the world of understanding that you lose as many as you win, um, those are things that probably are not necessarily learned in classical MBA programs. Uh, I find that the average MBA training narrows, and sometimes it stifles creativity. And surely, David, there's exceptions, like INSEAD in Paris or Thunderbird, if you want to study globalization. But there are even some new green MBAs that I visit, um, like Green Mountain College in Vermont, that I find creative and expansive. Um, But I always used to say to my students when I admitted Masters of Science students into the program that I directed um, at RPI, that it's probably better to come in as a scientist or engineer or lawyer um, before you get your MBA. But lately, as I'm getting older, I'm beginning to think that the love of books and the access to newspapers um, may be even more primary. Our society needs to become like Ben Franklin all over again, and he did not have an MBA. It's interesting to me that in our research notes that we shared together, which were so terribly interesting, that you had quoted uh, Peter Drucker at this stage, um, established in his major work, and who who said, you know, any 22-year-old can feel the glow of an MBA, but it takes a few decades of painful decision-making to become an executive. Yes. And isn't that so? Uh, although I think that that's the case in any walk of life. Uh, we, we can come out with many qualifications when we're, we're young, but it takes many years of dedication 
self-knowledge, uh, self-belief and wisdom to really be able to utilize them uh, or utilize that experience to the fullest extent. I'm totally with you. And, you know, that's another way in which Siriaco Arroyo helped me by having me read Heidegger. And here's a Spaniard who studied with Husserl directly in Europe. The whole notion that we're thrown into the world, you know, that the world already has pre-established rules, um, laws, and social norms, and that we have to form our identity, you know, control our animal instincts and our competitive instincts in the context of tradition is something that I somehow knew uh, and learned before professional training. I'm stunned, uh, David, by how many people are 22 or 23 and that hasn't crossed their mind yet. And so I began to wonder if sometimes professional training narrows us so far that we lose the zeal and emotional intelligence that the classics can bring to you, or that things like religious tradition used to bring to people. Uh, you know, if, if all you're doing is paying $4 for a Starbucks coffee in the morning and reading data instead of the New York Times, um, it is possible to become very narrow. And, and so I guess I would say that I learned those things before I got to college, and maybe that's the good fortune of how I was brought up. I'm interested at this uh, during this period that uh, we we talked about uh, that time that you had there and that you really gave it up uh, to spend more time uh, writing and, yes. and also with your firm. And quoting uh, my own personal experience, uh, a, a film on the humanities that I uh, directed uh, back in 2004, uh, in the, the final slate, the final credits, I actually uh, said in that that those who struggle are those who really live. Um, and I had noticed in your notes that there's something in you that likes to struggle, that, 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 that doesn't want to have too much comfort and reassurance. Um, can, can you tell me about that uh, sure. in, in context of, to what we had talked about uh, previously here and, and, and in the years now following this, this time? Sure, and I'd, I'd like to do it by both going back to the age of 10 and then fast-forwarding to the two times I gave up tenure. Um, at university. Um, I think in retrospect, there's something in a writer or there's something in me as a writer that likes a struggle and that loves a challenge and that the comfort of academia and the reassurance of professionalism actually disturbed me, made me anxious so that I gave up tenure within the first year of both times it was given to me. Now, you could be funny about it and say, you know, Woody Allen jokes that he never wanted to be part of a club that would accept him. There was a little bit of that sportiveness, you might call it determination in me, that didn't want to join a club that took me. But there was also a larger world that was knocking on the door. You know, Governor Cuomo, in my first tenure, and in the second tenure, the growth of my firm. You know, even while I was uh, at RPI, I always paid them for five offices in a private sector space where I had my firm growing um, almost like you do when you have an egg in an incubator. So to, to answer your question about comfort, um, it would be too romantic. You know, it would be more on the scale of 0 to 10. I'd, it would be inaccurate on the 9 to 10 to say that I love life on the edge, but I don't like comfort. So I think the creative process is something where you go between 3 and 6, I think if you go past six and you start going to the abyss of seven, eight, or nine, you might get more creative. You know, 
you might start writing poetry instead of nonfiction. But that tornado of the self is not really part of myself. I'm trying to write social history. And so I'm happier to live at the level of six in intensity and uncertainty rather than at the level of three. So, you know, after teaching the same class and the same books a second time, I was so bored with myself. Um, I loved the students, and I loved the creativity of the students, but I could not ever not change my syllabus. There was always something better and different that I wanted to try out. And so I, in that way, I do view myself more as a generalist. Um, going back to the age of 10, David, um, I remember distinctly, and I, I kind of still feel like when I say this, I feel it can be misperceived, and I feel some trepidation in, in myself. But I, I remember walking a beach at age 10 and having two simultaneous feelings. The, the first feeling was, hey, look, my father's been dead for seven years. If I don't find out what I can do, you know, no one's going to find it for me. So that, that fire or that urgency was there. And the second thought I had watching the waves hit the beach line is that I had a feeling of how social history continues to erode um, the standing, even though I had a sense of the classics and I, and I, and I found some grounding in the classics, um, the erosion of change is something that fascinates me. And maybe that's another source of why I like being a business consultant. You know, every six, ten months you have a different mix of clients. And maybe that's why I also have a positive addiction to the act of writing. Uh, this really does, uh, for me, uh, solidify what I've always felt about human beings, is that there are two types. Uh, there, there are obviously leaders and there are followers, but more importantly, what you're describing is risk-taking. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that uh, when you like to struggle, you, you don't want that reassurance or that comfort, you are clearly a risk-taker. Uh, you, you, you don't have any problem with, with taking risks. Uh, and and I, I, I feel that that is uh, a strength in a human being to, to take on that position. Well, you know, you don't want anybody to step on your own dreams except yourself as you're walking down that beach, you know. And you do want to befriend allies and strong friends to help you continue when it's getting a little too salty and hot. So I, I am a, probably a risk taker. I've been a very slow, steady risk taker. There are some people, I remember a lawyer friend of mine who wanted a divorce, change the city, and change his law firm all in the same month. So I don't want to give your listeners a sense that I'm um, so agile um, or so adept to change that I change on a dime. I, I, think, I think the world is so rich and so diverse that I do take risks. So let's think of it this way, David, in discussion. I, I think books are windows, and action is where the doors open. And so if you think of it in terms of theory and practice, um, I think what my early childhood gave me is the understanding that you have to take action, that you have to knock on the door. I think what Cor Cornell gave me was the framework to look through many different windows and say, would Orwell do that? Would Gandhi do that? Should I do that? Um, and so in the union of thought and action, I'm probably less of a risk taker than uh, some of the exceptional people in the world, um, but I am a, a risk taker. You know, I would call it a intelligent risk or a 
careful risk. And I was about to follow that by saying that uh, if I look at my life, I've always been a risk taker. Mm-hmm. And of course, when you're younger, you, you do tend to take risks that, that are not thought through. But as you, you get older, your risks become methodical and, and well planned out. Um, I like that phrase. I think risks do become methodical. And, and therefore, uh, the outcome uh, becomes much more certain and, ass- and assured. Mm-hmm. This uh, gives me, offers me a segue into your, your next uh, uh, period in life here. Um, after Cornell, y- you visited uh, Stratford-upon-Avon, and mm-hmm. you were clearly very moved uh, and taken with the works of Shakespeare. Um, that was clearly a pivotal time for you. But I'd like to actually move on to uh, the work of E.F. Schumacher and uh, the, the, the concepts of Small is Beautiful, which are quite amazing and, and almost suggesting to me that he was before his time. Uh, what did this author uh, do in shaping your career for, from that period onwards? Wonderful question, and I would like to just say historically in, in terms of the, the life sequence, I was so fortunate that as an undergraduate, when I was leaving the sciences and, and quantitative work, um, they sent me a summer to Stratford-upon-Avon, so I experienced that even as an undergraduate. After having never gone out to dinner at home, um, you know, to suddenly be in Stratford-upon-Avon at age 18, 19, I think it was, was wonderful. But getting back to Schumacher, I read in the paper at Cornell, it's called the Cornell Daily Sun, that you could apply to the provost and win $900 back then, which seemed so much, to bring somebody that you wanted to imitate to campus. And I remember one of my professors talking about mimesis and the basic human instinct to imitate. So I had read Small is Beautiful in 1973, when I was such a young man. And so I took that $900 and I invited this great thinker who had been the chairman of the British Coal Board during World War II and who had written a most beautiful book called Small is Beautiful, Economics as if People Mattered. And there was a chapter in it on Buddhist economics about how one competes not just for price and quality but also for humane purposes, social purposes, he had a chapter in there called Technology with the Human Face, and just in a stunning book that 35 years later still is influential. So I had the good fortune, David, of corresponding with E.F. Schumacher while still an undergraduate. I had used my scholarship to help create a, a society called the Leonardo da Vinci Society at Cornell with friends that was a union of scientists and humanists. And so this was the period when I was trying to take my quantitative instincts and move them into a leadership or qualitative realm. And, and I uh, had this great economist from Cornell, I mean from London, come over. And I asked him, where would he like to speak? And I had a chance to introduce him. And he said, I don't want to speak in the School of Engineering. I don't want to speak in the School of Arts and Sciences. Let me speak in Sage Chapel. And that already blew my mind away since um, I didn't think of him in, in wanting to speak, you know, from a pulpit of wisdom, but he did. And he did speak in our ag school, and I was his host for three days. The, immediately after that, I wrote a review of his book for our local free newspaper. And in many ways, that's when I discovered a more lasting satisfaction in writing. Um, so I've been doing this thing 
for a long time now. But essentially what Schumacher taught me in one of the beautiful metaphors of his book is the way I've structured my corporation. He, he says that uh, what he means by small is beautiful is that he had experienced giantism, and he had experienced what Orwell calls totalism, um, and understood that that's a very stifling and repressive way of the world. And so Schumacher, at the end of his life, having climbed the mountain of large organizations, wanted to become more enterprising. And so his concept was to allow people within large firms to hold some balloons, and that each balloon had its own buoyancy and lift, and that the person holding the balloons of creativity and innovation were really managers or administrators, but each balloon had its own life and lift. And in many ways, that's the way my firm is now structured with the senior associates, where each of them has a lot of buoyancy and lift. They're former CEOs, they're former officers from GM and Whirlpool and really significant firms from DuPont. And so I think part of the reason we can be effective as management advisors is that the people I work with are already known as the tribal leaders of a certain corporate space, and I'm just the facilitator of the assigned change. Um, so Schumacher was very important to me. I had the privilege, um, and I hope I'm not ram rambling, that after 9-11, when um, the horrible tragedy in Manhattan happened, um, that um, I took the book out again for solace and wrote a six-pager uh, about E.F. Schumacher in 9-11, because I think his lasting insights even help on tragic issues of that magnitude. It always amazes me, looking back at uh, my career, my life, how one single book uh, can stay with you for a lifetime. Mm -hmm. uh, and I can think of Paradise Lost as being one of those one of those uh, amazing uh, pieces of work. Um, you are clearly, at this stage, uh, very impressed upon by these great writers, um, by uh, people such as uh, Lord McCulty, um, uh, George Orwell. And now you're, you are beginning to really uh, look at yourself as a writer uh, to publish your own books. And, of course, your book, Beyond Dumping, um, where did that where did that initiative come from? Uh, you're you're going from you're going into a different period in your life now. That's right. I, I had uh, finished my PhD, started the S Corporation, and began working with very smart lawyers and executives. Um, and at that time, from 1981 to 1984, Congress was very concerned about Love Canal and Rocky Flats. They were concerned about vivid instances of hazardous waste contamination. And I was playing a role in some of that, uh, testifying in, in front of various finance committees like Roth's Finance Committee or other committees in Congress because I had always developed a fascination in the corridors of power. And I was a, a young person teaming with chemical engineers and, and lawyers. It, my first two books, David, are nothing less than black and white books on legal process about how you protect society through regulatory change. They're now, in retrospect, very juvenile, uh, very simple. They're black and white. I, I think the classics have taught me how to write in color, write with some contrast and drama about a world that needs to happen based on a world that is happening.
Now, in that case, then, your early work, you would agree, was more analytical and less uh, fluid. Absolutely. Now, uh, you continue, and you are uh, writing many books um, uh, very much around sustainability uh, and the environment. And how are you finding your, your own perspective, uh, your own life changing, being shaped through these books? Um, as a photographer takes a photograph, as a, a director uh, creates a film, uh, that it, it is very much... Uh, a reflection of us as human beings. Uh, how was it for you with these books as they uh, as they developed? How was it changing you personally? That's a great question. Um, I guess to breathe in, I would say that the wonderful thing about publishing a book is that men of consequence and women of substance sometimes come through your door and start engaging you in wonderful dialogue, finding purposes for you, finding assignments, and in many ways, my firm has grown based on those people coming through the door. So I, I believe um, that I'm that type of writer where only half of me is the studio artist who wants to stay with the equipment and the data in the closed room. The rest of me wants to prance outside and shake hands with the senator or the congressman or you know the TV uh, personality. Um, and so, in a way, although I'm a social historian, as you look from book three to book five, book three was called In Search of uh, Environmental Excellence, Moving Beyond Blame for Simon & Schuster. And that was the first time I started writing in color in about 1990. It, was, uh, it won um, the Nature Society Book of the Year Award, and it really gave me a feeling of I was finally beginning to imitate, even though I was still jumping two feet, one inch, relative to, you know, the greats. Um, so I think each book opens a set of different doors. Um, I probably went back for strength to reading and meeting people. Um, I think I'm a person who writes uh, based on reading and meeting people. Um, now, that's very different than my supercharged superhero, George Orwell, who in his essay, Why I Write, says he writes for five purposes. He says he writes for political purpose, for social purpose, uh, for the mere sound of the words, uh, because he doesn't know what else to do, and because of pure ego. Um, I think I write mostly because I love meeting some of the people that writing has brought into my life. Um, and I think I also write because I am a little bit of that studio artist who wants to make sure the composition feels sweet. So in that wonderful Van Morrison song I referred to before where he, he, the starting stanza is, well, my mama told me there would be days like this. After he talks about those moments of sunrightness when everything falls into place, like a flip of a switch or when all the parts of a puzzle look like they fit, clearly the compositional instinct of a writer is to make the parts fit to flip the switch of the reader's mind as best you can. But Van Morrison pauses in the middle of the song and just plays a sweet saxophone. And the music is so beautiful. Uh, and then he starts talking about the downside of not getting it right, about when people step on your dreams or when some people are, you know, you're betrayed by an old Judas kiss is another line in the song. So often between books, 
I might be listening to music, um, like a Van Morrison song, and, and saying to myself, well, how can I do the next one a little bit better? So it's both has the sweet saxophone, and it also has the cadence of history in it. And so I keep trying to get it right, David. Well, as we charge over that hill and we see your experience uh, expanding so much, not only in your writing, but also in your professional life as a consultant, it definitely uh, brings the issue up that covers uh, probably the rest of the program, uh, covers your, your latest book, uh, the uh, the social um, ramifications for corporations in our world today, and and also how as a writer and as a businessman and as a as a human being, you ensure that you are receiving response back from your listeners, from your readers, from the public, and and all of those aforementioned areas, uh, just as corporations need to get response back in knowing that they are taking the right direction. And I I was terribly interested with uh, your reference to Abe Lincoln, uh, a view that the real merits, there are real merits to public opinion baths. And that's that's terribly important for all of us, isn't it? I agree. Um, You know, Abe Lincoln helped me between book five and World Inc. and The Surprising Solution. Book 7, the one that just came out two weeks ago, The Surprising Solution, Creating Possibility in a Swift and Severe World. Um, In many ways, I had people like Abe Lincoln in mind when I was looking at the global financial meltdown, looking at how do we develop leaders we can trust, uh, looking at questions like, what is a really good example of corporate leadership? where a firm is not only competing on price and quality like Deming and Duran wanted and stated, but also on social needs. So I'm thinking of Lincoln, and Lincoln has two wonderful statements in many of his speeches that that I wanted to uh, reflect on um, because they helped me write The Surprising Solution. The first was Lincoln's writing um, a speech as an early lawyer, and he's saying to himself, I now realize I have many friends in the world, most of them dead. And he's talking, David, about reading the great books out there in the frontier life of uh, his early days. But then he has another wonderful passage where he's, he's writing uh, about now having some power. And when you become a consultant and when you own a firm and you're working for multinationals that are as complex as Toyota or HP or this Warren Buffett firm that I've been working for uh, for the last three years, Shore Industries, What you realize is Lincoln was so right when he said that once you have a little power, it's very important to take public opinion baths, to cleanse yourself, you know, by going into public and by speaking before a leadership council or by writing something up accurately. So in many ways, the surprising solution is a summary of my ventures out into the world. You know, it's it's really got three parts to it, David, which I think are all... Lincoln-esque in a way. The first part is, what is this new wave of understanding we have about value in markets and about value in society? And and, and how does a leader respond to the panic of the bubble being busted and to the resolve to get through the panic? So that's the first third of the book. The second part of the book is called Redefining Corporate Leadership. And what it's really about is trying to help firms accept their future that they really can't not compete on social needs because 
today's capitalism in an overpopulated world is about, you know, once you get inside these corporate mansions, it's really about realizing how the best firms are trying to compete to sustain themselves. Um, the third part of the book is about money. And, in fact, it was probably the, the most fun part to write because I got to knock on the door of all the valuation firms from those now in question, like Standard & Poor's, to Innovest, to Dow Jones, Sam. And I started to think of my grandmother in writing that. My mother was so busy just trying to keep the kids' shoes tied and fed. My, it was my grandmother who was like a senator in my life, and she said to me two things that uh, I was thinking about as I was writing the book. She said, one, Bruce, money matters. And in saying that, you kind of felt that this Polish immigrant, you kind of felt the physical weight of money and how it influenced her transition from Poland, you know, pre-Nazi Poland, but she could feel it, to coming to the States to set up a little shop, a bakery in, in Newark. Money mattered, and it was not something that I could ignore. Um, the other ending of the book, The Surprising Solution, is very much about this Madoff, uh, fiasco, how we're close to midnight in our um, impatience with bad management. Um, she said to me once, and it was really quite incredible that she would say a phrase like this. She said, you know, money is not something you can keep in the closet because money won't manage itself. <laughs> and so there's a chapter about that. And I thought it was pretty amazing for a woman, an immigrant woman who never made it, you know, past 10th grade to say these things to me. So Part of the act of writing is going back to the ancient wisdom of when you first heard something, but also part of the act of writing is building the bridge to the future. Now, I believe that uh, in our next program together, we'll look at this book in more detail. Uh, but in the final 10 minutes of the program, I'd like to cover some, some pivotal areas, if I may, sure. uh, taking reference uh, from uh, some of your, uh, your words in the book. Um, Starting off with uh, the fact that we have to explore this new world order that we're finding. Mm -hmm. um, there are, in many ways, uh, a, a reference to uh, Orwell. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know whether he should be quoted in that, but there are certain merits in looking at, 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 at his work. Um, and you do go on to say in a, in a, a later chapter... Uh, that not only will people be able to see disaster looming on the horizon for certain companies, but they will even have a hand in calling for the end of those companies. Now, in creating that new world, what is it that CEOs and companies have to assure in not only being innovative, creating a, as a, a paramount part of their business a very, very high-quality product or service mm -hmm. um, that is confirmed back to them through evidence from the general public. How is it that we can create a, uh, a form of communication for these heads of uh, or, or leaders of these companies? Great question. Um, much of the surprising solution is readying um, CEOs to how fast the world has changed in the 21st century. And so I describe uh, this S frontier where the swiftness of information and the severity of global markets require leaders to be more social. And so the S frontier 
I'm trying to describe how on the bottom of the S, many companies will go underwater because they won't be swift enough or severe enough or social enough. I don't think that the social responsibility movement is just a bag on the side of a corporation. I think it sits like a sister at the table with the swiftness and the severity that I write about. And so the CEO of the future, who will thrive and build a corporate mansion in this S-Frontier, is someone who needs to compete on price, quality, and social needs. Uh, Someone who has an answer to avian flu, like Baxter International, or someone who could build a more efficient home with uh, radiant barriers uh, and more efficient flooring and windows uh, in a time of carbon and capital constraints. So in my mind, David, in order to um, describe the future value and the current asset value of a firm, I've written in this book about how a CEO and how a leader needs articulate power, needs the ability to carry that mansion of products and assets and liabilities into the S frontier and position it for increased value. Now, is there a lot of stress in that? Yes. Is there a lot of anxiety? Yes. Is it a different identity than one who simply competes on price and quality? Yes. And in in some ways, the reviewers that are embracing this book um, around the world, you know, from the Hindu to Publishers Weekly, are ones who are seeing in it this idea that I'm not talking about relic leadership, I'm talking about emerging leadership. And so I think that's the best way to think of it, is that leaders have to have the articulate power to make themselves better leaders, just like a learner or a book reader. And they have to also make better products for a smaller world. And of course, uh, part of your mandate uh, at AHC is the idea of sistering, uh, the methodology um, uh, around bringing these leaders into conferences to be able to work with each other, listen to each other, share the ideas. Now, how, because surely it is not only the product in the future that will be assessed by the general public, by the consumer who becomes ever more intelligent uh, 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 about the world that they live in and what they're being provided, but it, but it is very much about the leaders themselves as personalities, as characters, as, as, as those uh, ethics that they hold. Now, the sistering uh, idea that you have with your consultancy group, which is amazing the way that it brings these leaders together, how can that be expanded so that not only is there a sistering between these leaders, but also a sistering between these leaders, what they do, what their plans are, and the general public to be able to provide that necessary feedback that they need so that they don't become insular in, in what they're doing? That's a very visionary question, and the first way to answer it for your listeners is that I'm very thankful that you have the AHC Group Affiliates Workshop agenda from January, where a person can click and download and read the bios of the 18 exceptional leaders, and that they could also take a sample of governance and money as viewed by TIAA-CREF, the uh, $400 billion tax-deferred annuity for those that are teachers and not-for-profit workers. Um, The fact that you've posted them on David Gibbons' um, webpage is a way of giving quicker information to those, say, in Africa that couldn't have been there in Phoenix last week. So to answer your question, the tactics of the Internet 
are things that, as I get older, I'm more and more interested in. The whole idea of posting leadership lessons for free on the Internet is one way to answer your question. Uh, I guess I can't escape the bottom line, and that is that I am a businessman now. And so the question becomes, if I have to charge leaders this exorbitant fee and develop a large staff to make sure that I have the 80 best corporate leaders thinking about climate change in the room at the same time, and that that takes the deliberate mixing, as we do every couple months, of some people that have a huge liability because they're not ready on carbon and others that have an advanced approach to carbon. So I, I have various techniques of when I get them in the room on how they're going to share in our sanctuary insights to where they quicken the pace of change through this sistering, through the whole family of firms. And the great, most graphic example is the GE Masco uh, Environments for Living uh, campaign, where a couple of years ago they started talking within our leadership network about building the next 200,000 homes with 10% um, less material but the same size, 20% less carbon impact, and 20% reduction in electricity costs through seven business sciences. And so six of our corporate affiliates are involved in that. Masco, the building products firm, Shaw Industries, which is the Warren Buffett firm I work for in flooring, LP, which does the roofing, Owens Corning, which does the insulation. It's just a wonderful story of sistering, and that's the kind of work we've been doing for the last 20 years. It's not the concepts that matter. It's the atmosphere of trust that one has. Now, your question was deeper because it's also asking how do you bring in the best thought leaders and how do you bring in the NGOs and, and government into this all. And the beauty of writing a book is that you have the freedom to try and imagine how it could be done. I, I want your listeners to know that it hasn't yet been done. Mostly what I've really done is created a corporate sanctuary where companies in need can learn from each other. Um, we do have some of the largest engineering service companies in the membership with the Shell and the Suncor Energy and the Dow and the others. And we do bring thought leaders like TIA Cruft. That's why I'm glad you posted that. However, the world is so large and so severe that we would be popping the bubble if we brought in um, others than that kind into the sanctuary. So I think your question is challenging me on how to write my next book, which will be about the fabulous complexities of money with a greater sensitivity to NGOs and the public at large. In the final 30 seconds, uh, sadly, as the program comes to an end, uh, could you just uh, let me know uh, for all of us out there uh, what it is that is going to occur here over the next couple of years with these corporations, with these leaders that puts the trust in people to be able to uh, report back to them and to be able to give them feedback and, and give offer more transparency all around. So I think two things that I can see, and, and I say this all in humility, history shows that two-thirds of them won't even be there, that there is a kind of cleansing in the severity of capitalism that I actually have now seen as a historian some satisfaction and a feeling of equity. And I think the second is the capital markets have become more rigorous and the deception of a Bernie Madoff is less likely. If there is a third thing, I think the leader of the future needs, ha needs to be successful, David, in both carbon constraints and capital constraints. And that's why I'm glad 
that you put the greenhouse gas climate change um, carbon counter from Deutsche Bank on your webpage because I think that's going to teach people how to learn more about how urgent that issue of carbon and capital constraint is. With all that said, uh, it has been wonderful to share this time with you, Bruce. I'm certainly going to look forward to uh, regular programs with you where we can delve further into all of these issues and provide our listeners with good, uh, accurate information. That would be delightful. And, and, you know, as Ben Franklin said, let's be informative, persuasive, and occasionally delightful. Absolutely. Thanks for your time, David. Thank you. And to our listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as I have today. Uh, Bruce Piasecki will be joining us again, I hope, uh, on a regular basis during our programs. Meanwhile, if you need information on this or any other program in the series, do visit davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors.